Um, and you, you'll see why as we go through it. Because of this whole idea of giving thanks and celebration, which is key to the Israelite life, the people of Israel owed more to the Lord than any of them realized. And like us, the pressure of life was such that you could easily forget what the Lord had done for them. Without intending to do so, they could gradually become preoccupied with materialistic things, the pressures of this life and begin to adopt an ungrateful, selfish, and loveless lifestyle. And bottom line is, that is where a lot of us are, that we're, we're faced with all the pressures of life, and we become incredibly self-focused. Gratitude. We are, we are very immature in that way. We don't give thanks. It is horrible. Isn't it horrible when you go to somebody's house and you've got, you know, small children or whatever, and the children never say thanks for anything. It's just assumed. If a child grows up just assuming that everything happens, everything just comes to them, then what will happen is that they'll, be, they'll become selfish and immature adults. And that's uh, across the board in, in so many different things. Ungrateful, selfish, and loveless lifestyles. And God needs to remind us every now and then, just as we need to remind children to give thanks, God needs to remind us how important it is for us to live thankful lives. I think each of these three great festivals that are mentioned here in Deuteronomy 16 were to remind the people of God, uh, people of what God had done for them. You know, and thankfulness as well, is it, it, it extends in lots of different ways. Um, I think I was most amused in, in terms of in understanding this is one time we were in Jackson, Mississippi, and we were taken to a country club. Now, those of you who don't know what that involves, it really is like mega posh. And we were given this absolutely sumptuous meal. And um, myself and Annabelle, we, we, we said to Andrew and Becky, uh, go thank the people who gave us this meal. So basically, it was the millionaire and his wife who'd invited us, we had in mind. But they got, got up and they went around all the African-Americans who were the waiters and waitresses and thanked them all for giving us the meal, which I thought was very neat, actually, uh, because they did give us the meal. And uh, I think in, in how we look at giving thanks, we suddenly realize when you actually start to sit down and to see who we should be thankful to, starting with God and then working your way through so many different things, there's so much that um, we ought to be grateful for and so many people to be grateful to. Now, these feasts, these festivals, each were to be held in the sanctuary. Each were to bring the people together from different tribes and different parts of the country. Each were to be times of rest and recreation. They were to be holy days, hence holiday, uh, each were to be times of spiritual, physical, and corporate renewal. And if you want to read more about them, these are basically, this chapter is basically a summary of Exodus 23 and also Leviticus 23. So I want to go through the feasts here and see uh, <coughs> how we can apply them to ourselves as well. First is the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, from onwards from verse 1. There, 
God's people were being told to celebrate their salvation. It occurred in March-April. That was known the month of Abib. Passover occurs on the 14th, and the unleavened bread on the 15th to the 21st. It was a combined feast, and the purpose of it was twofold. Firstly, to remind the people of their miraculous escape from Egypt. Look at verse 3. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste. It is vital in this book of Deuteronomy, God says that you remember my care for you. The unleavened bread reminded them of the haste they left Egypt in, the need for holiness, the bread without yeast, and so on. There is a continual need for living history, the story of the people of God. I was speaking to Christian Union on Friday night, and dread word, postmodernism. And one of the things that's important in postmodernism is this denial almost of the past, this kind of uh, an ahistorical view where it's just, it's really just the present. The, pre- the present is the only thing that really matters. The present is what's dominant. Who cares about what happened in the past? The trouble is, if you don't care about what happened in the past, then you don't appreciate a lot of what we have today, and you don't receive a lot of the warnings. A classic example would be in our culture, I hope the day never comes in this country where we forget what happened during the Second World War. I think it is tremendous that in every village, and, and certainly where I grew up in Fern and Ballantor and all these villages along that part of the Tarbot Peninsula, I couldn't walk past or cycle past any of the village centers without this enormous monument to the hundreds of young men from that area who died in the First and Second World Wars. Uh, and just to think about the folly and the stupidity of the, the madness of the First World War and the evil that was involved in uh, the Nazis and um, everything else in the Second World War as well. And to forget that is, would be absolute folly on uh, our behalf. But on a Christian sense... There are so many things that we forget. We forget what we have been rescued from. And we forget to, to give thanks to God for what He has done. And that's why the story of the people of God is not just the story of what happened to me this week. It's not just let me tell you about my most recent experience. The stories that we celebrate are the stories of salvation. They are the stories of redemption. They are the story of what Jesus did primarily and centrally, but all the things that came from that and that come from that as well. And the trouble is that too many Christians say, well, the only thing that really counts is my experience right now. But that's actually not true. What really counts is what God has done and continues to do. And we need to continually celebrate that. Now, that's why 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 1 Peter 1, 19, for example, links together communion and the Passover and reminds us, in effect, that every time we take communion, every time we celebrate communion together, we are engaging in, in the Passover. We are celebrating what God has done for us. Second purpose of the Passover was to point forward to the life in the new land, verse 8, where... Uh, it says this, for six days eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day hold an assembly uh, to the Lord your God, and do no work. 
They eat that unleavened bread and they take that rest and they take that break and they, they look forward, verse uh, 5, 6 and onwards, where God was going to place the dwelling place with His name. They are looking forward because at this point they weren't in the land to get into the land. The seventh day was to be a day of rest. The land was to be a land of rest. When the people enter the land, they celebrate the Passover, then immediately afterwards eat the unleavened bread that is the produce of the land. And so what this feast does is it remembers the past, but it encourages people to believe that God will continue to bless. The Passover was a family feast, and yet it was to be held at the central place of worship. The communion is a family feast, and it is held with God's people worshiping and sharing together, the family of God sitting together at the table. So, in that respect, there are these feasts that, or this feast that tells us of what we've been rescued from, but also promises God's blessing for the future. Then there's the Feast of Weeks from verse 9 to verse 12, which, as well as remembering God's salvation, now is to celebrate God's generosity. This is also called the Feast of Harvest, Exodus 23, or in Greek, Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost, Greek for 50 days. It was a 50-day feast in seven weeks. And it was to be made after the offering of the first ripe grain of the year, which was made during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was, in that culture, the period between the start of the barley harvesting and the close of the wheat harvesting. And again, it was just to be reminded, God's people to be reminded and commemorated that not only does God save us, but that He continues to provide for us. And again, if you look at those verses, verses 9 to 12, you will note the emphasis. They are to rejoice in worship they are to care for the poor. The meal must be shared. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, the Levites in your towns, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. You are never thankful to God if you are greedy and if you are selfish. When someone says, thank you, Lord, this is mine, they are not saying, thank you, Lord. Paul says that one of the reasons that we work with our hands is so that we can have something to share with those who are in need. The truly thankful person is a truly generous person. The miserable, tight-fisted person, the anxious person, is not a thankful person. You care for the poor, the meal must be shared. You remember the deliverance, and there's a kind of renewed obedience. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and follow carefully these decrees. Now, you translate that into New Testament terms, and what have you got at Pentecost? The gift of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate the bread of life. We celebrate God's generosity because God in the New Testament has poured out His Spirit upon all people as was prophesied in the prophecy of Joel. You know, again, sometimes I think as Christians we come and we say, oh Lord, I don't feel this. I haven't got enough of this. I don't see this. And we forget just how much God has actually given us. We really can enter into the presence of God. That's what we're doing here this morning. We don't have to travel hundreds of miles to go to a special place. We don't have to undergo sacrifice and ritual in order to come into the presence of God. We don't have to go through a priesthood. We don't have to go through special cleansing. 
There isn't a curtain that's blocking the way into the Holy of Holies. We have access to the Holy of Holies. We have the Holy Spirit, and we should celebrate God's generosity in that respect. The third is the Feast of Tabernacles, verses 13 to 17, which celebrates God's faithfulness. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles because of a command to live temporarily in tents during the feast, and that was to remind the people of their temporary dwellings during their flight from Egypt. So, you know, for those of you who've ever gone to tea in the park or something, or you've gone to any one of these festivals, listen, these are old hat. These tent festivals were going on. Glastonbury was going on a long, long time before um, pop music kind of came along. And that, in, in a sense, that's actually, I'm not being facetious, that's actually a very good image of what is occurring. People are gathering, they're going away. I mean, what do you do when you go to tea in the park? You're going to listen to the music, you're going to be with your friends, you are actually going to celebrate. And these were these huge tent festivals that would occur, celebrating God's faithfulness, celebrating the gathering in of the whole harvest in late summer. And again, you'll note the emphasis that occurs here. There is joy in worship. Be joyful at your feast. Thompson says this, in God's presence, where the worshiper becomes aware of his past mercies, of his present forgiveness, and the prospect of his future blessing, the expression of deep joy seems to be natural and spontaneous. Joy in worship comes from acknowledging what God has done. Notice also the community and the unity. Verse 14, again, you, your sons and your daughters, your men servants and maidservants, the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless, the widows who live in your town. There's a tremendous unity amongst God's people celebrating and a tremendous sense of community. And there's also a looking forward to the ultimate harvest, the ingathering of the people of God. If you go to the prophets, particularly Zechariah, Zechariah 14, for example, verses 16 to 19, you'll find that this future ingathering of the people of God is linked with this feast of tabernacles. We sit down and give thanks to the Lord at every meal, and we invite all to share in that. We, uh, the practice of giving thanks, I'm just out of interest, I'd love to do this. I mean, I'm not going to do it, but I'd love to ask how many of us say grace at every meal, and how many of us who do say grace say so just as habit, and how many of us really sit down and say, Lord, I thank you for this meal, or are we really saying, it is my own checkbook that has got me this? You know, the, the whole question of gratitude and thankfulness because I know my attitude. My attitude is, why don't I have that? Why don't I have that? Why don't I have that? Not, thank you that I slept with a roof over my head last night. Thank you that I have clothes. Thank you that I've got food. It, it seems almost perverse that we have to be prodded and reminded to give thanks to God for these things. And that's at a, a material level, at a, at a spiritual level. I think we fall into that same pattern where what we do is, Lord, I don't have this. Lord, I don't have that. Lord, I want this. Lord, I need that experience. Lord, and in a sense, we ask God for things legitimately, 
But what we've forgotten is to give thanks for what we already have. You know, it is often said that you do not appreciate what you have until you lose it. You know, they say that of your health, that it, you're fine and great and you never really give thanks for your health. And then you catch some illness that lasts for ages and you're just in constant pain. And it goes away and you're just so thankful and so grateful when it goes away. Sometimes the pain is, is almost needed to teach you the thankfulness. I think in a, in a spiritual sense, we often don't realize what we have. There are people, I mean, let me give you this example. You get some Christians who say, oh, you know, this, I can't be bothered going to church today and it's pretty boring. I wish it was better than it was, you know, and like kind of moan and groan about different things. Do you know that there are people who would long to be able to hear God's Word? I remember a friend of mine from Nigeria when I was at Edinburgh University. He couldn't understand why we complained about having services that lasted more than an hour. He said, I just, I would love to be able to go all day to hear what God has to say. There's a very, very different attitude that uh, so many of us have. But we just kind of fall into this trap. And yet what, what it becomes is we've become very individualistic and we've become very, very self-centered and we're not really all that God-focused and we're all incredibly busy and we're all very, very tired and, oh, Lord, we don't have this and, oh, Lord, we don't have that. And the Lord's basically saying, well, actually, you do. I've given you all. You're just not using it. And what you want is really not what I want to give you. So I think that... Um, we need to rethink this in many, many ways. Verses 16 and 17 there are just a summary of they are to go to the sanctuary three times. They are required really three times to appear before the king in order to bring allegiance and to bring tribute. That's to some extent a reflection of what's called the suzerain treaties, the great treaties that kings would have at that time between themselves and their people. And that's reflected. God is saying, look, I want you to come and give thanks three times during the year. Okay, how does all that apply to us? I mean, we don't have these elaborate feasts. We are not going to go out, thankfully, today and live in tents to celebrate uh, our harvest thanksgiving. But I want to argue that in the New Testament, we have these. It's much, much simpler, and it's much, much more. In other words, these three feasts are incorporated into our celebration, our holy day, which is the Lord's Day. Now, it's very interesting that lots and lots of Christians want to say, well, there's, I worship Jesus all the time, and I'm in the Spirit all the time, and you know, we don't want this legalism, and we don't want uh, you know, this Sabbatarianism, and so on. Well, I want to argue, yes, I, I, I don't want the Sabbatarianism. But I want, I absolutely do want what the Lord has to give us in terms of the Lord's Day as it's taught to us in the New Testament and as we can learn from the Old Testament as well. Because frankly, I don't believe any person who says I'm constantly in the Spirit and I worship Jesus every day and so on. None of you are that spiritual. I'm certainly not. And just as the people of God in the Old Testament needed reminders and needed focus and needed community and needed to share together in order to maintain their walk with God, so also do we. 
And I think that is what the Lord's Day is all about. It is a day of celebration. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, somebody was quite surprised. He was a famous preacher, um, kind of famous for being very Reformed and very Puritan, but phenomenal, great, great, great preacher. And he was in the United States preaching once. He was taught at Westminster Chapel in London. And if you ever get a chance to read any of his books, collections of sermons, I'd strongly recommend it. He was in Florida, and his hosts were a bit surprised that he stopped after the morning service to buy an ice cream. Now, in America at that time, America's changed completely. America's now so totally commercialized that there's virtually no Lord's Day left. But in America at that time, it was very, uh, there was still a very strong notion of Sunday as being a day of rest and of worship and no shops being open. And Lloyd-Jones stopped to buy an ice cream, and his hosts were a bit surprised because this man was a very strict and, and very godly, very biblical man. And they said to him, sorry, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, but we need to ask, why, why did you do that? We would do it, but why did you do it? We didn't do it because we thought you'd object. And he said, well, I, he, he bought an ice cream for the kids and so on. And he said, I want the children to recognize that Sunday is a day of double celebration, not a day of withdrawal. I thought, actually, personally, that was very, very wise in lots and lots and lots of ways. I think some of us have been brought up with the notion of Sunday of being a day of deprivation, the day when you don't do certain things. I mean, um, you don't watch television. You don't do this. You don't do that. Now, there's actually some truth in all that and some value in that. I think it's great. Don't, I mean, why anyone would want to do it anyway, I don't understand, but any, you're, you're mad to go downtown and shop on Sunday. Uh, take a day off from shopping. Take a day off from work. Um, those who are students, for example, I get lots of students who will say things like, you know, well, I need, I've got an essay to do on Sunday night. I'm saying, take a break. Take a day off. Do your essay the other time. You need a break. You need a rest. But I think sometimes when we always present worshiping God or the Lord's Day in such negative terms, we miss out something. The reason we don't do some things is precisely because we are too busy celebrating. We're having a party. For example, last night, let's say this. Supposing I had come to Emma Jane's party last night, and I wouldn't do this, but supposing I brought my laptop and sneaked away to do a wee bit of work in the middle of the party. Is it legalistic to say, don't do that? You're there to celebrate. How are you celebrating if you're so tied up with work? Well, I want to tie this in in this way. I want to suggest that there are two models or perceptions that we have of church and to kind of bring this home in terms of where we're at as a church. There's the spiritual shopping center, cinema, school type model. We come, we get what we want, what we need spiritually. We need a spiritual pick-me-up. We need teaching. We need a fresh injection. We need a buzz. We need something to keep us going during the week. And that's what church is for. Now, there is some truth in that but it is fundamentally flawed. I think that's why so many Christians need the conventions and the conferences and the special events, the opportunity to celebrate. Because they go to them and they get that opportunity, they have a weekend together and they, they celebrate and get to know each other better and get good Bible teaching and all the other things as well. And then they come back and they say, well, why can't church be like this? Well, it can. It just depends entirely on your attitude. Church can and should be like this, because the second model I would suggest 
is that what we're doing on Sunday should be seen as community celebration and renewal. It should be seen as these three feasts all rolled into one, where we recall God's acts, we enjoy God's rest, we obey God's word, we remember God's goodness, we share God's gifts. We look to the past and we look forward to the future. We go back to the cross, we look forward to the great heavenly feast. In this respect, I think it is right to think of it like you would think of a birthday party. You really do not celebrate on your own, unless you're Mr. Bean. If you've seen that thing with Mr. Bean where he celebrates his birthday on his own, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant half-hour piece of drama, but so sad. You know, he's celebrating his birthday, makes his wee sandwich in the park, twirls his sock around, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, just sings happy birthday to himself. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday. And you're just going, oh, that's so pathetic. And it's meant to be. But it makes a very, very telling point. Well, I'm telling you that there are some of us, some of you who are Christians, and you celebrate God's goodness like Mr. Bean on your own. It's you and Jesus. That's what really matters. That's what really counts. It's wrong. To celebrate with others, you see, actually requires some effort, some expense, some time, some hard work. It's all worth it. A party is not um, something that you just turn up and let's party. If it's a community party, then you all share in it together. Now, I think we forget that. I think often many of us will turn up at events, and and it's all there. And again, it's our immaturity. We're like spoiled brats. We expect the food to be on the table. We expect the dishes to be done. We're actually shocked when someone asks us to do it. What? And so, we might come to events, say, for example, uh, I mean, I think it's a great thing that we're doing this good as new sale or whatever, and, uh, but it doesn't just happen, people have to put effort into it. Now, the trouble is, we've adopted a mentality, I, I think a commercialist, materialist mentality, where you buy people to do things. You know, so instead of bothering with a party, what you do is... Um, you pay someone to come and do your party for you. Now, that's fine. But I I tell you this, as a child, I personally much preferred the fact that my parents were concerned, more concerned, had the time and the effort and so on to actually be involved. As a community thing, it's so much better. And I would say that is exactly the same with church, with coming to celebrate God's goodness. Far too many Christians think that they are paying for someone to lead them in worship, or someone to teach them God's Word, or someone to do everything for. But that's not the the case. If we're going to celebrate, actually, you know, if you party all the time, if you've ever done, well, I'm sure some of you have done children's parties, at the end you're going, glad that's over for another year. Of course you are. And sometimes, you know, on a Sunday, you're you're thinking, I'm glad that's over for another year, or another week, (laughs) not another year. (laughs) Shows you where I'm going. Um, but, but, you see, the thing is, it's worth it. You put the effort in, it's worth it. If your mentality is, I'm just going to turn up in church and see what happens, not much is going to happen. You have to put the effort in. Every one of us has to put the effort in. And yes, it's a hassle. And yes, it's a pain. And there's so many different things. But it's a celebration. If you focus on the fact that it's a celebration, something to rejoice in, you're not thinking, if, okay, there's something wrong. If at a party you're thinking, you're looking at your watch and you're going, when is this going to be over? It's not exactly a happening party, is it? It's not really going anywhere. 
There's something wrong if all that you're concerned about is the mess on the floor. There's something wrong if you've forgotten the reason for the party. When you see people's smiling faces, when you see the person that you're celebrating or the event that you're celebrating and you remember that. And there's something wrong with us if all we ever see is the externals and we don't see the Lord and we don't see the reason for celebrating. We have, of all people, we have, as Christians, every reason to dance and to celebrate. One aspect of each of these festivals, by the way, was a pilgrimage. The Hebrew word was hag, much like the Muslim word hajj. And we have that. It is a pilgrimage. We don't stay at home. You know, I, I get so, I'm sorry, but, and, I'm, and if this is you, I, no, I'm not going to apologize, actually. I'm, no, I'm not sorry. If, but if this is your attitude, I honestly think this is a rotten attitude and utterly against the Bible. If your attitude is, oh, I'm going to worship God together with my family at home, where do you get that? It's not in the Bible. Your family, the community of God. Now, you can have some really, of course you should have worship at home every day. You can have really precious times with your children, with other people around you, with the people in your particular community. Okay, we don't have men servants and maid servants, most of us, but we, 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 we do live in different types of homes, and of course that can happen. But are you really saying, in contrast to worshiping together with the different homes and the whole family of God, I'm just going to stick at home myself? That's not Christian celebration. We actually bother to go out and to meet with others. And our worship should be inclusive of all classes, races, and kinds of people. And our worship should be generous and wholehearted. We do not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Yes, we can say, nothing in my hands I bring in terms of our own self-righteousness. Absolutely. But in terms of coming empty-handed to worship, no. It's like, I don't know your culture, but... uh, some cultures, you're invited to a home, you wouldn't go empty-handed. You know, uh, Annabelle's great because she's the good Lewis culture in that respect. It doesn't matter where we're going. It doesn't matter how late we are. We have to get something because you can't go into someone's home empty-handed. And that's, ups- and that's a brilliant attitude. And that's the attitude we should have coming to worship. We don't come empty-handed. Our worship is a response to God's generosity. Paul says in Philippians 4.18, I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You see, we have that last bit of the verse pinned on our walls. We don't have the bit about but what we give is the fragrant offering. John 16, 24, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. We come and we ask and we receive. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. I find it extraordinary that Christians think, well, we come to worship and we've got nothing to give. You should. I, I think it's a great, great practice to say, to sit down on a Saturday night or on a Sunday morning and say, you know, how has God blessed me this week? Okay, I know that I give a tithe or whatever, but I've got extra. I'm going to give that. Or I'm going to ask that this be given to help the poor. I mean, it's extraordinary that we are so much in worship, coming to take and take and take and take, and then we don't get 
And then we say, well, I'm going somewhere else because this shop stroke church isn't good enough for me. Remember this, says Paul. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is, is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Yes, it's a celebration. Yes, it's a party. And we work really hard in order to be able to bring something to the party. I think that uh, uh, that whole aspect of thanksgiving and gratitude is so much tied in with our, our attitudes and our willingness to be generous and uh, to share. Of course, we're not going to do that if we don't trust. Because if you have the view, it's me and my world and me and my family, then you're going to be hanging on to every penny to watch out for the future and to pay for the things that you think that you need and forget any aspect of community or sharing or helping. And forget the aliens and the orphans and the widows and so on because you can conveniently put your money into a charity where you don't ever have to meet them. But in the church, that's not what it should be like. In the church, we share together and we celebrate God's goodness together ridiculous dream, people will say. No, it's not. It's what Christ died for. And I think perhaps the best way to finish this is with the words of C.T. Studd, well known, but nonetheless still immensely challenging. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And I would add John Piper's interpretation of that which is basically to say that we don't make a sacrifice anyway. It's not really ours to give. It's God's. And God, if you like, loans it to us as stewards, and we, we share it with him and with others, and he blesses us because of it. Let's pray.